Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Is winter over? I, I went outside yesterday and it was 31 <laughs> degrees and sunny. And I thought, wow, I could take my coat off. And today it's supposed to be even warmer and this weekend's supposed to be warmer. I am sure my colleagues on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, are overjoyed to see the sun. Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, Chris Warnowski, what do you think? Is winter over? I'm waiting for the March and April snowstorms. <laughs> we're trying to answer that question. Uh, we're going to talk to the National Weather Service today. But I think I got to get more skiing in before the snow all melts. What I appreciate is the break. I mean, we went like how many weeks of no break? And so, Chris Warnowski, it's great to see the break, right? Well, are, are we going to have flooding now that all this snow is melting? No, I don't <laughs> want to be so there. optimistic. The on this but, all right, Chris Warnowski, Chris I, still living under a gray sky. I'm in the sunshine. Glass half empty. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start. Every judge who has considered the issue says Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose has the ability to provide more than one ballot drop box per county. So what does LaRose say? Jen Cahoon, this has been one of the worst cases of talking out of both sides of your mouth I've ever seen in Ohio politics. Let's take it from the top. Okay, so Andrew Tobias did this story because we thought we really needed to revisit this this background and explain it in view of LaRose recently saying he's going to keep this limit for the 2021 elections, limited to one ballot drop box per county. He is still sticking with his belief that a legislative change is needed to to allow him to permit more than one drop box per county. But as you said, Even the judges who have sided with him in court cases about this have said he's got discretion on this. It's not required, but it's not prohibited. So his critics think, you know, like you said, that he's being disingenuous when when he said in the past that he favors expanding drop boxes. But, you know, he would say that he's been consistent in in maintaining that this is a matter that is best handled by the legislature his his spokesman. But, wait, but, but, that, but that's simply not true because he did say, I believe in it. And if a judge says I can do it, right. I'm all in. So but he that didn't happen. Yeah, so he, he may claim he's being consistent, but he said, hey, this is the roadblock. I need a judge to tell me. Then the judge right. told him and he says, uh, 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 I need the legislature to tell me he doesn't want to do it, even though he keeps claiming he does. That's the hypocrisy. Right. Yeah. You're also going to throw the flag on what his spokeswoman told Andrew, which was, you know, referring to the 2020 lawsuits over this issue as ultimately inconclusive. You know, she says LaRose thinks the General Assembly, you know, really needs to come up with a comprehensive bipartisan plan. Of course, as we've talked about before, you think this legislature is going to support anything that makes voting easier? I, I think not. But this is a page right out of the despot's handbook to just restate facts that aren't true and, and, and try and make them sound true. And it's our job to say, no, that's not true. You said you would do this if a judge said, OK, you didn't do it. So basically you were lying then or you're lying now. <laughs> and, and look, this gets back to the idea that in some counties they have a ballot drop box for a few tens of thousands of people. 
voters. In Cuyahoga County and Franklin County and other big populous urban counties, it's one drop box for hundreds of thousands of voters. There is absolutely no fairness to this, even though he tries to claim it's a fairness issue. And this really came to the forefront, you know, during this pandemic when when we had more people voting by mail and we had and still do have all these problems with with the post office. Sorry, Chris. No, no, I I just had a couple of questions. Does does he have the discretion to to make this because it is weird that we do this by county and not by per capita? You know, I mean, we Mm -hmm. we we have one per county and regardless of population. And that 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 seems weird. Does he have the discretion to just change that without the assistance of the legislature? Well, the judges seem to think so. I mean, the a, a number of judges, as I said, even ones who've taken his side on this. Mm-hmm. The, the the thing is, the state law doesn't specifically address it, mm-hmm. but these judges have said that the state law neither prohibits nor requires these drop boxes. So it's totally within his discretion. So I would think it's within his discretion to say. We can have, you know, thus and so many drop boxes per capita, as you said, or or whatever he wants. But he doesn't see it that way. Even when the judges have said he it, could do it, he didn't. Like he says he doesn't see it that way. It, I mean, it, I right. can't really believe what he's saying at all because he changes his statement. So right now he says he doesn't see it that way. Earlier, he said he did see it that way. It seems like. If you look at what the election lawsuits were, I mean, all these ridiculous lawsuits that were thrown out of court in states around the country, a lot of them took umbrage with the fact that secretaries of state were making unilateral decisions about elections without the will of the legislature. And it seems like he's kind of hiding behind that, despite the fact that the courts have really given him as much, you know, a lot of of runway to do whatever he feels necessary is necessary to make sure that we can vote properly. And I and I have to wonder if, you know, our election had gone a different way, if, if say, Biden had won or if we had seen an onslaught of, of Democratic victories throughout the state, that if, if his tune would be different. If, well, if he would be saying that there's something wrong with the system and we need to fix it. Well, you're also forgetting we have county boards of elections that are supposed to focus on the local needs. He's blocking them from doing so. And look, th- this is all about reducing the vote in urban areas which are democratic. That's what he's trying to do. He's just trying to make it look like he's not. He's trying to say, hey, I'm a good guy. I, I want to help. I want to help. And then blocking it every turn. And I would argue his efforts were successful. Cleveland, despite the first black woman candidate for vice president being on the ballot in history did not turn out to vote. And in 2008, 2012, when Obama was on the ballot, they turned out in huge numbers. They didn't this time. And you have to wonder why. Yeah. And I was just going to say what's interesting is that, you know, after all these judges said that he has the discretion to do it in the end, this federal appeals court backed him on the grounds that changing the rules so close to the election would create confusion and a security risk. Well, this is after it's been litigated and now we're in the 11th hour. So those were the grounds on which he prevailed. So, I mean, I just thought that was an interesting, I'm glad that Andrew gave the whole case history here. Yeah, Andrew did a great job putting a spotlight on that Frank LaRose is not interested in helping people vote. His interest is in blocking people from voting. And every time he stands up to say otherwise, we need to call it out because he's just not, Telling the truth. My God, I hope somebody, Republican and Democrat, runs against him. We have to get a better system in this state, and he's not the guy to do it.
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cuyahoga County's housing market has made a lot of strides in recent years, but not in every neighborhood. Chris Ranowski, where have the prices lagged? Well, 2020 was a, a big year for the housing market, thanks in part to low interest rates and people seeking to get out of apartment buildings uh, because of the coronavirus. But there was a really interesting study that the Western Reserve Land Conservancy Thriving Community Institute released yesterday that basically said that long-term home sales in, in Black and low-income communities in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County have not seen the kind of recovery from the 2008 housing crisis that a lot of the other neighborhoods and suburbs have in this in this area. And this is a fascinating story that Eric Heising pulled together yesterday based on on this report that that kind of examines the the why and the how that resulted in this problem. And I think two of the biggest issues is is that it, it appears that a lot of the land in Low income and and, and African American communities have is after the housing crisis, after the foreclosure crisis, it was kind of scooped up by outside investors. But the other issue also is that lenders are creating a significant impediment to these neighborhoods because they they won't lend enough in mortgages or home repair loans to African American residents in impoverished areas to help improve them. So. I think the solution that was floated by this this report is that that we need more investment from the government and, and more assistance from the counties to help actually inject money into these neighborhoods and to create lending programs for for residents that might actually help them buy homes and 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 have owners that actually live in those communities as opposed to a lot of the absentee landlordism that you're seeing around. Hmm. Yeah, okay, it's a, that's an interesting strategy because it might be that that people who get to the point where they can buy a house decide to leave those neighborhoods, right, and go out to some of the places that are more stable. Yeah, but you're also you're also starting to see people buying it. What what your ha- what that creates then is you're you're seeing places like Parma and and Maple Heights and things like that that weren't necessarily popular are suddenly becoming popular. So you're starting to see. You're, what's happening is because you can't build a lot of new homes in a place like Cleveland because there's just not room in in some of the the more interesting neighborhoods. So you're starting to see people getting pushed out further and further into to the suburbs, and and so that's that's great in a in a year where none of us have to go anywhere. We don't have to go downtown to work, but at some point people are going to start going back to work, and then suddenly you're going to be met with huge commutes and. Then you're going to create a different type of inequity of people not being able to live near where they work and and all of that. I think, you know, I think what this this really is sort of pointing to is is that we have some great neighborhoods in Cleveland, but you know, there there needs to be attention made to to other neighborhoods that have have long struggled to bounce back. And it's you know, it's a multifaceted problem. You need businesses to be in these communities, but you also need residents to be in these communities for businesses to want to go there. And so, you know, I, I think spurring home ownership in those places would help, you know, it would help the economy in a lot of different ways. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the beef between Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish and the county council that held up the approval of a new sheriff Tuesday? Laura Johnston, this comes across as a he said, she said dispute. But I think in the grand scheme of things, there's no doubt that the county council is right here. What's the dispute about? 
Yeah, this all comes down to charter language of the sheriff, which, you know, they were arguing about a couple of months ago when it came to qualifications for the sheriff. So now they're arguing over who the sheriff should report to. And this is based on the new charter amendment that voters approved. I, I believe it's 2019. And so the sheriff went and, and sat before the whole council on a vote and said that he believed that he was going to have to report to Armin Budish through the public safety chief. And the council was like, wait, wait, that is not how it's supposed to work. I guess they were enraged about it. And they say it violates that voter approved charter amendment. And that whole amendment was aimed at granting the sheriff autonomy. So I know you went back and read yeah. that charter. And it, it, and there's no doubt about this, right. that the only power Armin Budish has over the sheriff is to appoint him. And it's a ridiculous power grab to sit him down and say, you answer to me. I, I when I first read the story, I thought, wow, is the council wrong? Because they were outraged. And I went and looked and it's like, no, they're exactly right. His only role is to pick them. And, and he can't even get rid of them. Only no. the council can get rid of them. So I don't know what he's thinking. I mean, you would think be, because of how badly he wrecked the jail and, you know, his changes led to eight deaths and his, his mad cash grab there to make it a profit center was such a bad news thing that he'd be glad to no longer be responsible for this operation. But instead, he brings him in and Bigfoots him and says, hey, I'm your boss. You answer to me. And, and the council is rightly outraged. Right. And so this isn't an inside politics, you know, story. This is really gets to the heart of the, the issues at the jail and who should be responsible. And the fact that the sheriff shouldn't have to worry about the overall county budget when he's hiring jail guards. And, I mean, and so the sheriff. But the sheriff always has, but this sheriff has the same powers of any other sheriff that's elected. And he does have to go to the county administration to with a proposed budget and negotiate that. And so so the county does get to set his budget. But the, the way it's designed, he hires people. He alone runs that jail. That, right. that that is his responsibility. So it's staggering. That, that this broke down this way. I, it was one of the more shocking stories to come out of the county in the past couple of months. The, the, and so Bernal Jones Jr., the new council president, stopped the proceedings and said, look, mm -hmm. you know what? Let's get the law department. Let's get this together. We're going to make it clear that he does not answer to Armin Budish. Right. Armin Budish should do the right thing today and say, oops, made a mistake. Right. My only role here is to, to nominate him for appointment. And so they pushed back the the hearing so that and the vote on this. But it, what's interesting is, you know, Budish is near the end of this term, and the way it's set up is like the sheriff's term overlaps to executives. So you can't get rid of the sheriff when a new executive comes in to give that sheriff more autonomy. But Budish, you know, put out a kind of bland statement that says they have a different view of the law. So he's got twenty two months left in his term. It seems like there's a lot more in his term to go. Chris Murnowski. You have to wonder how what effect this has on our ability to hire good people to do this work. If if people apply for jobs in this county, read the news, it, which I hope all of them do just for our <laughs> sake. But but you have to imagine that people who are really good at this kind of work look at this kind of stuff and goes, you know, I, I don't think working there would be worth whatever they're giving. And and I think that reflects in in, in some of the hiring that we've had. In, in some of the, the oversight that we've had in these positions. And this is just, you know, when, when you think about the toll, the human toll of what has happened at that jail and, and to know how long we have been writing about it 
and to be and, and to still be at this point where we're having these kind of discussions, it's inhumane and absurd. And 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 they, I mean, they really need to get it together. I mean, well, at, at this point, it's embarrassing to to this community that people like this are trying to govern like this. Right. We, we have a serious problem that needs to be fixed. Well, I give credit to the council, which has had, has largely been a lapdog to the administration until recently. I, they they did the right thing. The danger you pose here, if you'll recall, there was an effort to undo the charter and make the sheriff an elected position. And there were a lot of good government types. It's like, well, you don't want to go back. That's the Jerry McFaw years, one of the most corrupt people in history. But but if they're fighting over this, then maybe Mike O'Malley, the county prosecutor, will resurrect that effort and say, look, this is ridiculous. If Armin Budish is going to continue to try to thwart the charter, as he regularly has, to maintain control over this, let's elect them. And, and that starts to undo the effort to create a new government form for a positive future. We're 10 years into this government and it has not proven out. We've had very lame county executives to date. And so we haven't gotten the benefits that we thought we would see. This is dangerous for, for lots of reasons, including those you talk about. Anyway, it'll be, I don't think there's any mystery about how this ends. The county council is going to prove out right. And Armin Budish is going to have to admit he was wrong. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest proof that Ohio Governor Mike DeWine had a winning strategy to use the very limited amount of vaccine Ohio received on the oldest people in the state? Jen Cahoon, Rich Exner has done it again. Another statistical analysis that says, okay, this was the right way to go. Yeah, you know, one of the key metrics Rich always looks at is the hospitalizations to show how, how this pandemic is going. And we know that they've dropped off sharply overall the last several weeks, but this drop has been especially large for older Ohioans. And that was obviously the age group that was targeted to receive the first vaccines. So those age 80 and older account for 18.8% of the coronavirus hospitalization admissions reported so far in February. That's down from 25.6% in December just as this vaccination effort was was beginning. And Ohioans in their 70s make up about 19.7% of the uh, February hospital admissions, down from 25.4. This is for COVID-19 admissions, obviously. And then um, just the background on the vaccinations, you know, only 10% of Ohioans in their 50s have been vaccinated so far, but vaccinations have been started on 60% of those 80 and older 50% of age 75 to 79, 37% of age 70 to 74. So as we said, DeWine prioritized those 80 and older beginning on January 19th. And then after that started phasing in slightly younger groups. So we're now at like age 65 and older, which as we've said before, people in those age groups account for a huge portion of the deaths that we've had. And we should note that even earlier, there was this big time effort to get nursing home residents vaccinated, and that's largely been successful. Just for example, you know, they weekly report these nursing home figures on cases. And last Wednesday, they reported 1,294 current cases involving nursing home patients. That was down from 5,155 in mid-December and about 2,700 in, in mid-January. So so we've we've lauded the governor for prioritizing old people and um, older people. And it does appear to be 
making an impact. Yeah, I mean, we've slapped him around, rightly so, because of the very confusing system he's put together for people 65 and older that can't get the vaccine. Something that, that looks very likely to abate within about a month. I mean, the predictions of the amount of vaccine that are going to be available in a very short amount of time are pretty pretty heartening. But he did the right thing here, because to, to reduce the death, you had to go into the population that was dying. He had a very limited amount of vaccine. You know, I read the stories about that Arizona mass vaccination center where they're just processing people left and right. Where are they getting all their vaccine? Because we, yeah. we don't seem to have it here. But uh, he did the right thing. And, you know, he can, he can legitimately say he probably saved a bunch of lives. It's one of the good things he's done. So credit to him. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Beachwood police fired an officer over how he reacted to a shoplifter. Chris Ranowski, I'm kind of shocked at how this police officer reacted to the shoplifter. What are the details? Right. And I'm also shocked at the outcome of what happened to this officer. So we wrote about this at the time that it happened. But back in, in June of 2019, a, a Beachwood police officer basically opened fire on a shoplifter who stole a $60 hat from Beachwood Place Mall and was fleeing. and. And, and I remember in the original report, he claimed that, that he felt like the, the guy drove at him and said that his foot got ran over in the crash. But, but the city determined in a hearing that was held late last week and then in a letter that was released yesterday that he should no longer work for the police department. And he's been with the department since 2013. The officer's name is Blake Rogers. And he, the, the city basically found that, that the use of force in this incident was, was unwarranted, that you know, shoplifting a $60 hat and then opening fire on a fleeing car was probably not a good idea. You know, Did the, the officer articulate some, some danger he thought this person presented that, that I had to stop him because if I didn't, you know, mayhem would ensue or did he just open fire on a fleeing car? It, it was, I, his, his logic was sort of flimsy in that he, I think he came around in the back end and said, well, I thought the car was stolen and and, okay, tinted, you know, tinted windows and all that stuff. And yeah. it's, I, I mean, not, not a great case, but he's also, I mean, it's interesting because we, we started to dig into this a little more and, and he's filed suit against the city. So he's got like an ongoing bit of drama going on between him and the city. He claims that he was not giving paternity leave and that he claims that he was, he was punished for this to a degree in which an African-American officer was also, was not punished at the same level. So there, there's, a, I think there's a lot of ill will here between him and and city leaders because I mean you look at his if you we looked at his personnel file and I mean there really wasn't a lot to, you know, to blush at. I you know there was nothing. But you're just not supposed to shoot right. at nonviolent people who are fleeing. I mean that's pretty much a, a standard. And if he can't really justify a reason, if he can't come up with something about a serious danger, then. He shouldn't be a police officer. I mean, you're not supposed to do that. That's right. not a, and, and, and this is not designed as a defense of what he did or what he's accused of doing. But th there have been a lot of incidents at that mall. You know, there have been shootings. And I mean, I think there's been three or four or five since I've started working here. And, yeah. And, and so I think that, you know, when officers go there, I think their adrenaline's probably a little more heightened. But but this this really did not seem like it was worth, you know, you you, you talk about like what reasons police have to, to open fire on somebody. And, and the standard usually is, are they putting themselves or other people at harm? And, and I think what happens is when you, when you look at this incident, you know, the, the response of the officer put 
the person in panic caused them to flee in a way that may have put people in harm. So mm-hmm. in the absence of the officer behaving that way, does the the suspect behave that way? And right. and then look, it turns out this guy was not a great guy. You know, I mean, he was picked up and sentenced on this and and three other or I think two but other criminal not, cases. It, but that's not the point. They don't get killed for that. Yeah. So and you know, it is amazing they have all that violence up there with all the shootings. It's I think it's those Nordstrom and Saks shoppers up there. They just do a violent <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. We keep talking about mass vaccination centers for the coronavirus in Ohio, mostly because we're all waiting patiently to get the damn shot. Laura Johnson, how hard would it be to set one up? Well, it would help a lot, I think, if we had some FEMA money and some help from them as well as enough vaccine. But um, California, Massachusetts, Texas and New York already have their centers. FEMA's open sites in California, though there was a supply shortage there. They plan for centers in Philadelphia and Dover, Delaware. Florida slated to have four. But yeah, it takes a lot of coordination, a lot of logistics to make this happen. The American Pharmacists Association recommends using large public covered spaces close to public transit that allow for the proper storage of vaccines so you don't have any waste and can move people straight through stations to the exit so there's no circling back to the entrance. That Arizona State Farm Stadium we keep hearing about vaccinates about 400 people an hour or someone every 10 seconds around the clock, which actually works really well, even though you're thinking who's going there at 2 a.m., because they never have to put anything away. Like, it's always moving. And they also have an on-site pharmacy, so they always have the, the proper storage and refrigeration and an expert, and and those all help. The closest thing we have right now in Cuyahoga County and probably all of Ohio is the Educational Services Center that's vaccinating the teachers of Cuyahoga County, most of them. And they are staffed by about 40 to 50 people. They do 240 people an hour. And um, they use different conference rooms, you know, for each step of the process so that people keep flowing through seamlessly. They've been going every day but Sunday since February 10th. And today they expect to finish all the first doses. Well, we also have another example of a kind of a max vaccination center in the vaccination queens that Layla Tassi wrote about (laughs) because people are so frustrated they can't get it. These women are making appointments left and right. I've heard about that in other places where people who are good at the computer are just making appointments for friends and family and anybody in need, which is really sad because what they're having to do is untangle the system Mike DeWine has created that so confuses people to help them get there. A mass vaccination center would be a better way to go. This week in the CLE. You know, I'm going to leave it there. I don't think there's enough time to talk about Rob Portman and his capital questioning. Maybe we'll try and do that tomorrow, Jane Cahoon. We'll end early and you can go out and get a few minutes of sunshine in this balmy weather. Sound like a plan? Yeah, but as to your previous comment, I'm off tomorrow. Oh, you're off tomorrow. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Almost. Almost. All right. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.